Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the June 15th, 2021 episode of Unchained, which makes it the five-year anniversary of the podcast. I was originally planning a five-year anniversary event for the show, like an in-person event, but it's not really possible to wrap up a book, plan an event, and also produce two podcasts a week and a daily newsletter. So I will be planning an event for the fall. And what's even better about that is that we should be more fully past COVID at that time, which means we could have an event with few or no, or no restrictions. So stay tuned for news on that. Tezos is smart money that's redefining what it means to hold and exchange value in a digitally connected world. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. Conjure brings any asset you want onto Ethereum by allowing for users to create synthetic assets which track other markets. With zero interest loans and unlimited assets, it's helping DeFi to consume TradFi. That's C-O-N-J-U-R-E dot finance. Check it out. The Crypto.com app lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins, paid weekly. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. The link is in the description. Today's episode for the five-year anniversary is just an AMA because I'm also wrapping up my book as we speak and <laughs> just needed to, um, it, you know, use the time that I would have used to book a guest to uh, finish up the book. So today's first question is a poem from Ben Lawson, who some of you might remember for making this amazing video that we used in the live podcast recording with Vitalik Buterin back in 2019. And for this episode, Ben has written a lovely poem with some really deep questions. Take a listen. Thanks and praises, Laura Shin. It's an honor to visit your show again. Please forgive me for being so blunt, but a controversial answer is what I want. Not to put you on the spot, but we all know your takes are smoking hot. Do you think crypto has a role to play in the battle for drug peace? Could crypto philanthropists change the laws and get nonviolent prisoners released? Should worshiping Mother Nature be such a heinous crime? For loving her healing gifts, should we be staring down hard time? Has there been anything else like the famed Pineapple Fund? Have Giveth and BitGive projects fought for drug policy reform? With more trauma now than ever, it feels like the medicine work has just begun. Amin Soleimani is proudly outspoken about scoring shrooms on the Silk Road. Charles Hoskinson has wild masculine stories to tell of his own. Peter McCormick bought cannabis oil with Bitcoin to ease his mother's pain. Thanks to Ross Ulbricht, many a psychedelic seeker could avoid the street and be more safe. Ayahuasca may or may not be your cup of tea. Perhaps you're uninitiated into the wilds of DMT. 
I wouldn't expect you to wave a golden black flag like Vin Armani or espouse all of the tenets of cypherpunk crypto anarchy. But as a former yoga teacher and viral reporter, you might agree a fair and balanced story is in order. As memesters and fudsters troll the socials over which blockchain is more green, you don't have to be on Joe Rogan to know higher consciousness is what we need. I'd rather smoke a joint with the heroic peaceful warrior Alex Gladstein talk about uprisings against police states and authoritarian regimes, but Laura, you're the smartest off-chain oracle in the room. Maybe you know best if crypto-psychedelic liberation is coming soon. Is this the year when a swarm of cryptopians join the fight to make access to plant medicine a universal human right? So, Ben, this question is actually really um, outside of my area of expertise, I will have to say. However, one thing that does come to mind when I was listening to your lovely poem is that certainly a lot of people in crypto are very interested in psychedelics. And we also know that this is a trend now in in uh, Silicon Valley and just generally kind of in tech. For anybody who listens to Tim Ferriss, I'm sure all of you know that he is quite active in this space and also in the startup world and also into crypto. So I would say that there's probably going to be a lot of people with a lot of money who have an interest in this space. And you did mention some of them in your recording. Um, I also know, uh, like back when I thought that Olaf was going to be one of the characters in my book and I was kind of doing some early interviews with him, one of the questions I asked him is, uh, you know, oh, if you really make it and you become well, I mean, I was literally asking this in like 2016. <laughs> so it was like right after he launched his hedge fund. And um, and he one of the things he said is that he would like to donate to psychedelic research. So there's that. Um, I will say in my book, psychedelics do show up a few times in the book because it's just something that a lot of people in the space are interested in. And, uh, you know, to the extent where I would say it's uh, kind of, uh, probably what I would guess is of a greater prevalence than in the general population. Um, there is an event where people kind of make that observation uh, that, you know, the group of people assembled there kind of had a greater interest in it than than the wider world. And and I would say, like, if I compare to my friends, then, yeah, I would say my sources generally are, are more interested in this. So, um, you know, if people end up putting their money into what it is that they're personally interested in, then I would certainly guess that we would see that money going toward legitimizing, um, you know, drug use of, of different kinds, uh, probably mainly, frankly, from what I can tell in the area of psychedelics. All right. So the second question comes from Sweden, and I will let you all take a listen to this. Hi there, Laura. Eric here from Sweden. Always enjoyed your podcast. My question to you is, uh, amongst all the guests you had, which one was the most entertaining one? Thank you. And uh, God bless. So which guest was the most entertaining one? That is a good question. I the, Honestly, the, the first person that comes to mind is Meltem Demirs simply because, as many of you re- may recall, she <laughs> she swore a lot, uh, <laughs> basically. And um, I ended up using one of those words in the episode title, and so that was just kind of hilarious, frankly. And um, and she's just like a funny person, so I feel like that. And and 
actually in that episode, she was paired with Jill Carlson, who's a good friend of hers. And yes, I think the two of them just have really good banter. And as we all know, they went on and started their own podcast, which was really, really great. And so, um, so she comes to mind and another person who just was such a good storyteller. Like if you listen to the episode, I barely asked a question in the beginning because um, he just kind of went into storytelling mode and, and it was just sort of a sit back and listen moment was Gabriel Abed of Bit, who talked about kind of like his journey to, you know, help um, the Barbados government, I guess, uh, create their digital, their, their central bank digital currency. So, um, yeah, so he was kind of like a, a fun and entertaining guest. And I'm sure there are others, um, but uh, there are other questions that kind of touch on the subject. So I will, I will save those guests for those other questions. The next question comes from Ben Zhang, who writes, In financial venture history, we saw the rise of the PayPal mafia, where discontent and network went on to create many new ventures and projects. From which group do you see a similar trend unfolding in the crypto space? <clears throat> for example, Ethereum or Coinbase? where they continue to help each other in the network. And, um, and he mentions that, you know, he's thinking about how some of the Ethereum co-founders went on to develop Cardano and Polkadot and how Coinbase people have now started things like Polychain and DYDX, et cetera. And uh, Coinbase, I actually think may have even more because, you know, there's like Linda Shea who went on to do Scalar Capital, Nick Tomeno who does One Confirmation, yeah, there, there's just a lot. I think Diego Monica, I think, may have worked at Coinbase, and now he does Anchorage. Um, so there's there's actually quite a few. I mean, Coinbase is, you know, the Ethereum co-founders, there were only eight of them. And then for Coinbase people, there's, you know, tons more Coinbase people. So, um, you know, I think obviously we are seeing that happen. Um, I think what's interesting with the Ethereum story is that I'm sure people know that there's a little bit of bad blood amongst the co-founders. And so in that regard, I think some of the other blockchains are looking to be competitive um, or, or at least they're perceived that way, um, even when sometimes they're actually not <laughs> that similar um, to Ethereum. So so that's kind of an interesting thread that I do see. But for sure, I, I think, you know, because the space is so young that if somebody has experience at a successful company early on, then it's just it, it just gives you so much more of a leg up in a way than anybody who's kind of coming in now. Even though even though there's still so much uh, green, what do they call it? Green fields uh, where you know like a lot of stuff just hasn't been created. And so I don't want to discourage anybody who has. Um, only just entered the space. But, you know, for somebody who kind of really has already lived through all the ups and downs, especially early on when there really was no infrastructure in place, it like it kind of reminds me of how I started working at newsweek.com back in 1998. And I learned a little bit of HTML. And <laughs> I know it sounds so stupid, but in a way, like that just helped me as the industry kind of kept changing against maybe some of the older people who weren't familiar with those things. Oh, and by the way, speaking of the Coinbase Mafia, um, Fred Ursum, the co-founder, you know, is another obvious example because he went on to found Paradigm, which is, you know, one of the very active venture capital firms in the space. 
Okay. Next question from Steve Strawn. And actually, so I lumped three questions together because people have a lot of curiosity about this. Um, so I'll kind of let them all ask it in, in with their own angle and then I'll answer. So Steve Strawn asked, I understand you have not purchased Bitcoin or any other crypto asset in order to avoid a conflict of interest. Under what circumstances would you begin to purchase Bitcoin or any other crypto asset? Is there a point at which not owning Bitcoin, but owning USD may be seen as a conflict of interest that may creep into your reporting? And Scott wrote, has it been hard to remain a no-coiner knowing the ROI that top cryptos have produced compared to other markets? And also, has this been an obstacle in building credibility? And then Terry So asked, for someone with such an amazing upfront view, what's really stopping you from going all in on crypto? So, um, so just to correct the record for Steve, um, when, so when I worked at Forbes, the policy was that if you covered something that you could own it, but you had to disclose it. So I did at that time own a little bit of Bitcoin and also a little bit of ether. And then once I was out on my own and I wanted to write some freelance articles, the first place that I wanted to write for was a place where like you, they didn't have that policy. You just couldn't own it if you were going to cover it. And you know, so this, this maybe goes to the other questions, like from Terry, who asked, you know, what's really stopping me from going all in on crypto or from Scott asking if it's been hard for me to remain a no coiner. So here's the thing, you know, as much as I am completely obsessed with crypto and have lived and breathed this for like over six years. And just from the moment I learned about it, became super, super obsessed at the same time. I'm a writer and journalist first. It's just, it's just who I am. You know, I wanted to be a writer since I was nine years old. And there was a period when I kind of left journalism for a little bit. I was super unhappy during that time. And once I came back, I mean, I, I've just been uh, like, this is my place. This is what I'm meant to do. This is who I'm meant to be. I, I just have no question about that. And so if some of the rules of my industry are that, you know, in order to cover this for certain publications, I can't own it. Like, you know what, that's, it, it it doesn't bother me. It's like, that's just, that's just what my place is. And, um, you know, when it comes to like seeing the ROI, of course, I mean, it's like, it's not, it's not obvious to me that, oh, right. If I had kept that little bit of Bitcoin, like, oh, it would be worth whatever. Now it's not like I can't figure that out. Um, but at the same time, I just feel like if the price of of enjoying those monetary gains would be that I can't write about this thing that I've had more professional fun doing than like anything else in my entire life, then no way. Like you can't pay me enough money to not do this work. I love it. Like I'm just having so much fun. So in that regard, it has been hard. No, it's not been hard because I just am enjoying what I'm doing so much. And if that's what I have to do to do it, then like it's totally fine with me. Um, you know, the other thing though, is as I have mentioned on Twitter, like I work for myself, right? It's like, I could, I could say, I don't want to write for those publications. And so therefore I'm just going to own these and I'm just going to disclose what I own and it's going to be fine. And, you know, at the moment, I personally would rather just write for those publications. Um, if there comes a day when maybe I've written for them and I feel like, okay, you know, I've got that notch in my belt and I don't really need to, kind of like follow their rules anymore, then yeah, maybe at that point I'll just buy and I'll disclose what I own and, you know, whatever. But I honestly, like a lot of people seem to think that this is like something I might struggle with or they can't understand how or why. And I'm like, do you not have anything that you love so much in the world that like people couldn't even pay you enough enough money to, to like give it up? 
and and honestly, that's how I feel about covering crypto. Like that's that's really that's really it, you know. So no, it doesn't bother me. Um, okay, next question. This comes from Dylan Bricks. How do you think about DAOs? What applications of DAOs are having the most impact? What do you think is the, the trajectory of the evolution of the space? So some of you, I think, have seen my TEDx talk, and um, that kind of really was about DAOs in a way. The, the angle that I talked about was a little bit more what I was calling like user ownership, meaning um, that instead of this business model that we currently have, where these big tech companies uh, kind of use our data and then sell that and make money off of that. Like I do think that crypto networks could create a different sort of business model where the owners are also part owners in the network. And that is, that is basically a kind of doubt. You know, I didn't really focus so much on the organizational aspect in that talk. Um, but that's really what I was talking about. And so, um, frankly, I think that's so revolutionary. I know I've said this, well, I don't know where I've said it, maybe on Twitter or even on the show. I'm, I'm not sure. But um, the truth is that every time I think about this, I'm just like, whoa, this is such a big idea. And I really feel like ultimately when all is said and done, like this is going to be the big thing that kind of comes out of crypto. Frankly, that's just my personal opinion. Um, but, you know, I feel like the space is probably too young at the moment to really get a sense of what that's going to look like. But essentially, my kind of theory about this is that over, you know, the last 20 odd years, we've just seen that our communities are moving online. And you know, I think this was really underscored it, during the pandemic where for a lot of people, um, in a way, I mean, obviously, I mean, it really depends kind of like, um, it just, yeah, how your life is generally structured. But for a lot of people, their communities, uh, you know, are online. And so they were able to kind of like keep up certain aspects of their lives or connect with, you know, people around those interests in an online space. And, you know, it just feels like so much of our world does already happen online, but there's no way for us to govern those spaces. And that's why, you know, we saw these controversies with Facebook and Twitter and how they were intersecting with things like our own government and, you know, who should hold the power uh, when it comes to certain questions, uh, you know, where the digital online space intersects with um, kind of, you know, like what people tend to call meat space, I I really think that we are going to see crypto being used as a solution to address some of those issues. Um, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take. I feel like so many things will need to happen for that to work. Um, for instance, I think that blockchain-based identities will need to be a much bigger thing um, or a thing rather. And I do know some people who are thinking about interesting things when it comes to DAOs and how they intersect with the real world. And, you know, I'm so curious to see where all that goes. Um, but frankly, at the moment, I really feel like the tech is just so far in its infancy that um, this thing, which I truly think is going to be the big, big, big idea that comes out of all of this is kind of a ways off. 
So, um, frankly, I will just keep covering it until we get there because I am so interested. And, um, and like I said, I do think that this will eventually be the way that we govern ourselves in what so far has been this kind of like a borderless internet. Well, except for one other internet over there in China, which is different from ours. Um, and, or, uh, also shout out to, you know, the land of my ancestors, North Korea, where it's also a different internet. <laughs> but anyway, okay. Next question from Jean Martino, who were your f- most favorite and least favorite guests? So I'm going to have to go with most favorite and not talk about any least favorite because the most favorite ones come to mind more easily than the least favorite. Um, but I think some of you know, you've heard me talk about how CZ is one of my favorites and only because, uh, you know, I'm known for asking tough questions, but he is really good at giving good answers back. And I really, really enjoy someone who just like really engages and isn't afraid to to just say what they think. So, so yes, um, definitely CZ Melton, who I already mentioned, just because she's so entertaining um, another one, which I know a lot of people, you know, t- have told me that this was an impactful episode for them was the one with Yeonmi Park, the uh, North Korean um, defector who now is a human rights advocate and works a lot with the Human Rights Foundation. And um, she, you know, just kind of like talked a little bit about what it was like growing up there. And it really gave you a glimpse um, into how. Um, you know, it's just a world that's so separate. And and this was in the context of explaining how, you know, if Virgil Griffith from the Ethereum Foundation really thought he was going to help North Koreans, uh, what he was doing was the exact opposite. Um, Roya Maboob was also an amazing guest. And, you know, some of you may know either her or some of her more favorite, uh, famous projects, such as the... Um, I think it was the girls, was it? Oh, the robotics team from Afghanistan, um, where I think something happened with their visas, but then, uh, the, the, you know, they, the visa situation got resolved and they were able to participate in a competition here in the U.S. And, you know, she's done all kinds of really great tech entrepreneurial things in Afghanistan and also worked with Bitcoin for some of her companies there. And so she, you know, just really talked about how Bitcoin was able to change the lives of a bunch of women that used her startups. And so that was really great. Um, Olaf Carlson, we of Polychain Capital is another one, just because um, whenever I talk to him, you know, as a reporter, I feel like I'm kind of like looking uh, out a certain amount. And when I talk to Olaf, I can always tell he's just like a few steps ahead, which I really enjoy. Um, and Chris Berniski is also um, kind of in that same bucket. And he's got this great analytical mind and he has been one of the people to uh, kind of, uh, you know, formulate some of the great models for us to think about crypto assets. And so, you know, for him, um, I just really enjoy how he takes kind of his traditional financial background and that analysis and applies it in this space in fresh and new ways. Oh, and also speaking of Yoni Park, I would have to say Alex Gladstein as well of the Human Rights Foundation, who I'm sure many of you know, just is such um, kind of a, a cutting edge thinker when it comes to thinking about how Bitcoin can be applied in a human rights context. And so I always enjoy talking with him and learning a lot more about um, kind of arenas that I'm much less familiar with. 
Samia, there's our Willie Wu, who um, many of you know, he was just on the show. And hilariously, there was uh, like a, a previous show I did with him where one of the YouTube commenters was like, Laura's making eyes at Willie. And I was like, what? Um, but I think the reason was because the Bitcoin price was like going up and up and up. And we checked it right before the show and we were like shocked by the number. And so we started the show. And we were like laughing kind of um, a lot when we started. So I don't know if that's what that was about. But anyway, um, some other people, Kathy Wood, um, who, you know, she was the mentor to Chris Berniski and She's just one of those people you get her on the show and she's just like a fire hose of data and information and like really backs up everything she says. And she's such a big macro thinker and such a kind of futuristic thinker. So I always enjoy hearing from her. Um, Hester Peirce, the SEC commissioner, who um, is also very forward thinking, especially for a regulator and really gets this tech and is, uh, yeah, just somebody who doesn't make a knee-jerk response to things, but a very thoughtful one and really, um, you know, is dedicated to learning about the technology and thinking in deep ways about how that intersects with regulation. And I could go on and on and on because there are so many people. Um, shout out to Andre Cronia, who I really had a fun conversation with, Andrea Santanopoulos, who is obviously one of the great communicators and so nice to boot. And Haseeb Qureshi, who I would also put in that spot, and Taylor Monahan, who's highly entertaining and also um, just really incisive. So anyway, on I could go on and on and on, but those are some of my favorite guests. What are you most fearful and most hopeful about in the crypto slash DeFi space? And this question is from Chuck Wild. Um, so let's see, fearful. Um, I would say at the moment... Uh, and, and because I've been working on the book so intently, I really have not been able to keep up on news anywhere near as much as I would like. But, you know, I've tried to report on this a little bit. I don't know how much people are paying attention, but these new FATF rules, uh, as they might apply to DeFi, they definitely have me concerned because, um, to my mind, uh, they don't, uh, there's something, uh, you know, it, it's really a change in philosophy, um, in my opinion, from the uh, kind of previous FinCEN rules where, you know, uh, that kind of regulation only applied to companies that were custodying crypto assets. And so in this case where they could apply uh, these kinds of AML and KYC requirements to developers and things like that, that's something that to me, you know, signifies a significant change and I don't know how clearly it's been thought through, and I do wonder how that would affect the crypto space and, frankly, just the development of this technology. So, um, you know, I actually basically think they might be um, meeting about that sometime very soon. So as soon as I turn my book in, I will try to do a little bit more reporting and, and let people know about that. And what I'm hopeful about is DAOs, as I mentioned, um, but along with DAOs, quadratic voting, I think is such a great idea. You know, I've been wanting to dive into some of the projects that are using that. I know Gitcoin does, and I think there are some others. And I really think that that is a great way to, um, kind of work as an antidote against what some people see in our society as a lot of inequality or, um, kind of like the ability for the very wealthy to, um, kind of, own lawmakers and um and we can also see the same thing happen when people do on-chain votes 
Um, but I do feel like quadratic voting would be a way to counteract that. And as I said in my TEDx talk, I do think that user ownership is going to be a really cool thing and it's going to allow a lot more people to work for themselves, which I think a lot of people really would want to do. Um, you know, for me, I've done that for most of my career and, you know, just every time I'm kind of in a space where I'm my independent self working, like I'm just so much happier than I am working for somebody else. So, um, I feel like a lot of people would enjoy that. And I, um, do hope that crypto enables that. Next question from Charles, what are some missing catalysts that would ultimately encourage more people to adopt crypto? So um, for those of you who listened to my episode with Nick Tomano recently, where he said all he looks for when he goes to invest is great products. I, I, you know, that I don't know if I would have thought of that before hearing that from him, but it makes so much sense when you just look at simple things like how in 2017, you know, even, even though the ICO craze really, you know, was drawing in a lot of new people, it wasn't until CryptoKitties that kind of like everyday people really got into Ethereum and in a big, big way. And that's because that was a user-friendly product where you don't already have to be into crypto to be interested in it. And that's why I think CryptoKitties and NBA Top Shot are such great ideas and um, really something that can get, you know, just any random person interested you know, I think NFTs in general are really good for that. And Jake Brookman came on my show and talked about that, about how he felt like NFTs were bringing in normal people. And it's true <laughs> um, when it comes to me and my friends, um, once the NFT crazed, I, I, like a bunch of my friends are creative people. And so once that took off, I was kind of texting them and calling them and being like, hey, you have to check out this NFT thing. Like you should put your out artwork out this way. You should put your music out this way. You should, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so you know, in that regard, I do feel like really the the main, um, you know, missing catalyst to more people adopting crypto is pretty much, frankly, just more user-friendly products. Obviously, on Ethereum, the gas fees are a problem. I think multiple people probably have heard me discuss now how when I went to buy the Kings of Leon NFT, I made $90 in gas fees, which was terrible. Um, so, yeah, if, you know... If that could be resolved, then I'm sure a lot more people would participate. Um, but the other thing I would say is that I also still feel like the wallet situation is not fully figured out. And, you know, I, I mean, I, here I am just speaking from my few little forays and actually using this, like, even though I cover this, well, partially also because of the book, I just haven't been using the technology anywhere, anywhere near as much as I would like. Um, I think that's going to change soon now that I'm really wrapping things up with the book. But, um, you know even with the few times that I've been working with this, I've had bad experiences. And I think some of you heard that I lost like $500 worth of ETH, like within 15 minutes of getting the money. So that was really terrible, <laughs> terrible. Um, okay. Next question from Mike. I'd love to hear your favorite projects in DeFi and how you perceive the DeFi space. I think I'll have to go with why Wi-Fi or YFI uh, maybe right now, uh, just because the origin story of that was so great. Um, but another one that I, the, these are two, frankly, that I love are Uniswap and SushiSwap. And maybe also I love them because of that whole story about the vampire mining. Um, that to me was just 
like such a gripping moment in crypto. And I feel like I watched every moment of that and was just really, really fascinated by the whole thing. And, um, and, you know, Uniswap, you know, now is so dominant and, and V3 is obviously doing amazing. And so I, you know, I, I just, yeah, it, it's just uh, frankly fascinating to me to see kind of how, um, crypto loyalty works and, um, yeah. And just kind of how people just fall in love with certain tokens or certain projects. Um, and yeah. And how really, um, as long as people keep innovating, like that's what will draw people in. So, um, I think those really interest me. Um, yeah, in general, what I will say about DeFi is that I really think that that will also draw in a certain type of person, you know, even as much as I was talking about the NFTs, I remember that I was explaining kind of like some of the coins on Coinbase to somebody and, um, and pointed out like, oh yeah, if you hold this coin, like it gives you some X percent of interest and like, you know, it's a large percent of interest compared to what you would get at a bank. I mean, granted, it's because, you know, these are like untested coins and it's kind of like risky or whatever. Um, but that person like just, you know, their eyes like lit up in a way where they got it. And um, and so in that sense, like, yeah, I think DeFi definitely will also get a lot of people interested. Um, so Lee Quinn asks, she said that she'd love to hear more about the business aspects of podcast production. Okay, so let's see, what would I say about that? Well, probably the main thing is that when it comes to the actual podcast hosting, it can be pretty inexpensive. Um, like, I, I literally don't even remember how much my mic was. It might have been like 80 bucks or something. Um, and uh, the hosting per month, I think, is like, $20 or so. I, I don't even remember. Um, you know, but just a lot of the basic things can be pretty nominal. Um, however, what I will say is that random things can be very expensive. Like, um, there was kind of this weird and random issue that came up around the trademark for Unchained. And, um, <laughs> the person that I was like tussling with over this, they so they had never even used the trademark. Okay, so I don't know why they like cared so badly because I had actually used it. But anyway, uh, or or used the name. Um, but then this person actually literally said to my lawyer at one point something implying like, "I just want to rack up the bills for your client." Like like they just wanted to kind of make me pay these lawyers' fees, and my lawyer relayed this to me. So. Um, you know, I, I would have to actually tally up how much that costs, but it probably cost me, I don't know, I'm just going to, I literally don't know, but it might be like, you know, three or four months worth of what I normally pay out to my staff. So that's like a lot of money. Um, so yeah, so I just would say for the basics, it's like fine. It's, you know, not terrible. Um, probably depends on how big you go. You know, obviously at the beginning I didn't have um, as many people working for me. Um, and even now, actually, thankfully, I've been able to trim it down because I have kind of one person who, like there was one role that initially I wanted it to be one role, but then I couldn't find like one person to fill that. So then I had split it out into two roles for a while, but now it's back into one. So now I have a, a smaller 
group of people working for me. So, um, yeah, so that's, those are kind of my major tips, but I would say, you know, right from the get go, like it, it doesn't have to be a huge, um, investment. All right. So we're going to take a break just to hear from the sponsors who make the show possible, but we will be right back with my AMA. Tezos lets you easily exchange smart money throughout our digital world. A self-upgradable blockchain with a proven track record, Tezos seamlessly adopts tomorrow's innovations without network disruptions today. Because of this adaptability, engineers, conservationists, entrepreneurs, collectors, game developers, and artists from around the world are building, creating, and using Tezos every day. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. With over 10 million users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. If you're a hodler, Crypto.com Earn pays industry-leading interest rates on over 30 coins, including Bitcoin, at up to 8.5% interest and up to 14% interest on your stablecoins. When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebate for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. There is no annual or monthly fees to worry about. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 when using the code LAURA, L-A-U-R-A. The link is in the description. Do you want to trade gold, currencies, or even bananas on Ethereum? Conjure opens access to the global financial market for Ethereum by allowing for permissionless, user-created synthetic assets. Conjure allows you to create, borrow, and trade synthetic assets which track the value for any conceivable asset, real or abstract, using any price feed you want. Asset creators are able to earn fees on every mint and scale revenue with direct use for their assets. Synths are minted by providing Ether to collateralize the asset as 0% interest loans. Contra's helping to bring TradFi to DeFi and turn Ethereum into the real global financial settlement layer. Trade synths for USD, gold, BTC, or make your own. So why not check out C-O-N-J-U-R-E dot finance and see what's possible. Back to my five-year anniversary AMA with me. <laughs> okay, next question from Satoshi Sarah. What was the... F- Sorry, what was the most memorable thing you learned throughout these last five years from doing the podcast? Um, so, okay, the number one thing that I remember learning was that the power of one's voice is much greater than just from writing articles and having people kind of like see your byline. And the way that I figured that out was I started the podcast in June 2016. And in, I forget what month it was, but it was basically like spring 2017, I think. I remember going to some conference and multiple people came up to me and said, oh, I love your podcast. And, you know, by then I'd been writing articles on crypto for two years and I'd only been doing the podcast for one year or slightly less, but they associated me with the podcast and they weren't mentioning the articles so much. And so... You know, and, and not only that, but, you know, I've been writing articles for like <laughs> decades before then. So when I kind of figured out that, oh, they're suddenly just associating me with this podcast, um, it made me realize like, oh, yeah, you know, when it comes to me and my relationship to the podcast that I listen to all the time and really love, like, yeah, I feel like I kind of know 
the host, like, like my one of, so one of my favorite podcasts is the New York Times book review podcast. And, um, you know, it's like, I, I know the host, I kind of like know a little bit about her life. And then (laughs) there's at a certain point, they have these different reviewers that often come on and they talk about what they reviewed that week. And then there's like different book editors that also come in or different like book beat reporters. Like there's one who always talks about the book publishing industry. And so, um, you know, I just, I know all their voices and I kind of know a little bit about their lives and like what they like to read and (laughs) stuff like that. And so anyway, um, that for me, that was probably one of the main takeaways. Um, but you know, what's fascinating is as much as I've loved doing the podcast, I would still say writing is my first love. Um, but I do feel that in a way, this mix of doing the show and the book writing is just perfect for me. And it sort of reminds me of the days there was like a long stretch where I was a freelance writer and also taught yoga. And it was like perfect because, you know, I would get my kind of private creative time when I was just doing my own thing. And then I would have this other time where I was interacting with other people because I'm an extrovert and, you know, that's what I like to do. So in that sense, yeah, I feel like, um, I feel like the mix is good for me. Okay. Another question. Well, oh, three questions from Victor Boone. And I'll, I'll, I'll start with the first one. If you had time to start another podcast, what topic or area would you cover? So I've, I've thought about focusing, uh, like doing something, whether it's, I don't, yeah, I don't know if it would be a show or a newsletter or, or just a series of articles, or I, I, I don't know what, what this would be. I literally have not had time to think about anything except the book, the podcast, like sleeping, eating and exercising for a long time. So, <laughs> um, anyway, uh, if I were to start another podcast, maybe I would do DeFi or DAOs. Um, as I've said, you know, I, I am very interested in DAOs, but it might just be a little early for that. Um, DeFi is kind of like another burgeoning area that just has a lot of rabbit holes within it. And I feel like I would easily get sucked into that and be very fascinating. So, um, could be that, or if it were to be kind of non-crypto, I'm sure a bunch of you have heard me talk about my interest in like meditation and yoga and spiritual things. And, um, I also talked about how <laughs> when I meditate, I, um, do chanting in pranayama and somebody was like, you're more Indian than me. And I, well, he was Indian, but, <laughs> um, that's all holdover from my yoga teaching days. Which Victor also asked, which of your contributions to crypto are you most cr- proud of? So I would have to say it's uh, when people come up to me and say that because of my shows, they now work in the space. And I've had a bunch of people over the years who've come up to me and, and said that. And um, yeah, it just, I have to say, it makes me feel really good that, um, you know, they found something that they were passionate about and that through the work that I've done that I was able to kind of like give them enough information and comfort that this would be an area that would be worth jumping into. Um, you know, and this is just a general message for everyone, you know, as I've kind of pursued what I just really loved these last few years, meaning, you know, (laughs) as I became completely obsessed with crypto and really didn't want to do anything else ever again. (laughs) Um, I've had so much fun doing this. And so, yes, if you find something that you love and if you are listening to this and you don't currently work in crypto, but you love it, then you should make the leap. I'm just going to tell you right now. Um, Okay. 
And so let's see, Victor's last question is, what would need to happen in crypto? What level of success must it reach for you to feel mission accomplished and to do something else? So for me, it wouldn't be that something happened in crypto uh, that made me decide to leave covering it. Um, but it would it would definitely be something like, you know, covering it didn't feel like a challenge to me anymore. I didn't feel like I was like learning new things um, or that covering it became too easy for me. I, the general history of my work is if something becomes easy for me to do, I kind of lose all interest in it. So um, if that were to ever happen, I probably would be like next. <laughs> um, okay. Ed Rodriguez asks what the most surprising answer is to an interview. Oh, um, there are a couple. One, which I don't know if people caught this, but when I interviewed Vitalik in the live event, at one point he kind of like offhandedly said that the Ethereum Foundation really didn't talk about the the price of ETH very much because or like early on because they were worried about the SEC. <laughs> <laughs> and I, he may not have used those exact words. I should have used it, looked up the exact words, or maybe he just said they were worried about regulation. But I was like, oh, he's like full on admitting that. Um, another surprising answer was when CZ was trying to say that Binance is decentralized and he was comparing it to Bitcoin. <laughs> okay, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm sure he knows that. And I don't know how he thought he could pull the wool over all of our eyes with that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, a couple others. There was somebody who at one point refused to go on with the show when I said something and just was like, I quit. I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> we managed to convince this person to continue. It took 35 minutes, but we did. And um, so that has been deleted out. But I was like, what is going on here? Um, and then the last one, again, I'm not going to say who this was, but I asked somebody uh, what their organization did as their very first question, and they couldn't answer. <laughs> and so I had to change to ask about their background first. And that was also a surprise to me, but it must have just been nerves. Um, so, okay. Next question. In your time as an interviewer, have you ever had one single moment that felt like an epiphany or a change in paradigm? And this is Cryptolista who's asking me this. Um, you know, the only thing I could really think of when, um, I saw this question and maybe this is just cause this was like a pretty recent show was when I interviewed Mark Cuban and I opened by asking him, about some comments he'd made where, um, you know, he just said he kind of thought he could see it being more likely that ETH would end up as a store of value. And when I asked him about that and he was kind of talking about how he felt that ETH, because it was used for more things, like more people would want to buy it and hold it to use it for all the various things that they might use it for. And, um, and that, that made sense to me. Um, you know, I think the reason why I had never thought of it that way before was because the digital gold narrative and the strength of Bitcoin's monetary policy, all of that makes a lot of sense. And it's like very easy to grasp that. And so what Mark Cuban was saying was just kind of a, a like a really different way of looking at, at 
these crypto assets and it wasn't something that I had really considered, um, you know, because obviously ETH just at that time, at least, you know, in a month, we're going to see a change in the monetary policy. But at that time, um, or even now, which is now, he, he only came on the show a few months ago, it, it doesn't really have that kind of monetary policy. And so um, I think the idea of it as a store of value was kind of like a little bit more nebulous. Um, but I do think now, yeah, I, I can see what he's talking about. And I'll be interested to see how this whole thing plays out with the adoption of EIP-1559. Um, next question from David Stearns, which will be the three most important cryptocurrencies three years from now? So good time frame that you picked there because it's a little tricky, right? There's going to be a lot that's going to happen in the next few years. Um, I would probably still have to go with Bitcoin and Ether as the top two most important, frankly. Um, I, I think it's for obvious reasons. You know, Bitcoin obviously has the greatest adoption. Ether has the second greatest adoption. And those two aren't exactly competitive. So in that regard, they're, they, yeah, they, I just feel like they're, going to keep going kind of maybe in the way that they have, you know, obviously ETH, it does have the scaling issues, but in a way those are being resolved. Um, I'm sure some of you heard that Kane Warwick and Kyle Simani do look at Solana as being a potential real competitor to Ethereum and definitely taking, you know, potentially taking market share. And, you know, for sure, I will be interested to see how this plays out. I did see a bunch of tweets recently about a, a lot of interest in the Solana hackathon and a lot could change in a few years. But at the moment, you know, just with the whole e Ethereum ecosystem and the developer um, activity there, um, you know, right now, it definitely looks like that would still maintain its number two spot. And so for number three, I, I actually... Number three was the tricky one, right? It's like, what could that be? And hopefully this isn't cheating, but because you, you did term it as cryptocurrencies, but my thought, frankly, was it's going to be a stable coin. And so I was, I think I'm going to put my money on USDC. I know that it, at this moment in time, it makes more sense to put your money on USDT. Um, and it very well could be USDT. Actually, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about this more, I'm like, I should put my money in USDT because, um, so, okay, okay, let me just back up. So the reason why I initially was thinking maybe I would say USDC for the third spot is because I do feel like, you know, obviously more regulation is coming. And so that's why we are seeing that USDC is kind of becoming more widely adopted. Uh, like the, the pace at which it's being adopted is accelerating. Um, but then, you know, if you look at things like Binance, where um, the regulatory status is like a little bit less clear, you know, I would say USDT maybe falls in the same bucket, then, um, uh, you know, that a lot of people want to play in that space. So it really could be USDT. And, um, and right now, USDT does kind of like, at least have um, the regular reports that they have to make to the US, to the New York AG. And so in that regard, like, um, there's just, there's, there's probably going to be a little bit more comfort using it. I, I mean, granted, I know some people when they looked closely at what exactly was backing it and it's not at all what, <laughs> what it was originally promised to be. I, I'm sure that gives some people pause. Um, but you know, because of what I was saying about how a lot of people kind of want to play in that more nebulous regulatory space, 
who knows? It could be USDT still. So we'll have to see. Um, okay. Sledge asks, how do you land your guests? Is it easier given your success or harder than ever with crypto economy and culture on fire? You know, I will say that honestly, in recent months, I have probably put a little bit less effort into the podcast than I would normally. And so, um, I do feel that since I haven't given my full effort that, I might have more success if I was giving my full effort. And so, yeah, I have been kind of looking for like people that are a little bit easier to book, frankly, just because I kind of needed as much time as I could get for, for the book. But I don't, I don't know if my success has changed at all in terms of, or changed the, uh, changed my ability to get guests or not. Um, I think what I will say is that there's a lot more specialization and I haven't really specialized. And so in that regard, I think that in certain circles, if somebody's like in ETH, then they may not know me so much as, you know, a podcast that only covers ETH. Or if somebody is like really only into Bitcoin, then they may know um, another outlet that only focuses on that as opposed to me. So in that regard, I'm sure it, frankly, it helps me with some guests and it hurts me with other guests, but it's not something I really think about because I just have to do what I am comfortable with doing and, um, you know, just pursue my own vision of things. And, uh, frankly, you know, it's working out fine. Um, I am looking forward to, you know, not having to spend so much time on the book and to really kind of get back into the show and kind of into the news happening now. Cause I do feel like I've been a little bit out of the loop compared to, you know, previous times. All right. Gabriel asks, I'm looking forward to your book. Will you be featured in any more documentaries in the future? Okay. Uh, at the moment, no, because you know, I ha- there, uh, there have been a lot of requests actually, but I have not really been doing anything extraneous beyond the book and podcast. So as far as, as far as things being in the works now, no. Roman asks, do you think you already interviewed Satoshi? No. (laughs) And also asked, do you think you would recognize Satoshi if you interviewed him, her or them? So if, so if it were just kind of like a random show and I was just interviewing them and I was interviewing them for some other reason and, you know, not because I thought they were Satoshi or something, I may not. Um, if I, I have thought, oh, would I ever want to try to investigate who it was? The only thing is that would just take so long and, um, yeah, I just, I don't know. So I, I'm, I have a feeling I probably won't, um, try to investigate that. So yeah, you know what? I probably will not recognize this person ever. Cause I would need to do a lot of research and come up with a theory first, Um, And I do not have that now. So if I ever end up interviewing Satoshi, I will probably not know it. All right. Song says, if you could be anywhere in the world right now, where would you want to be and why? So I I can't actually uh, give too many details on this, but let's just say that there was something that happened in the book and it took place at this very fancy, nice place in a very, very optimal location. And um, my fact checker and I were looking at this and (laughs) I I was like, whoa, like this is kind of like a paradise. 
and um, he he made a joke basically saying because the person who shared this with me, you know, said like that it is possible to to book this place. And, um, and so, yeah, so I, now the joke is like, oh, when I finish the book, I'm going to go to this, you know, lovely spot on the planet and just live this decadent and luxurious life. So we'll see. <laughs> um, okay. Manu asks, how would you advise someone without experience looking to get into the industry? So the main thing, and I think I've said this before on other shows is that, this whole space is just being built right now, right? It's not like there's all these rules that have been set up in these structures and it's not like things have been done this way for a gazillion years. Um, like, I don't know, For I like to go to Italy a lot, but sometimes when you're there, it's kind of like this funny thing where you realize that they're, you know, it's like made in Italy means quality, right? And so they're kind of like, they have this set, Kind of mindset about how things should be done. And it's very funny to an American, but anyway, um, but here when it comes to crypto, everything's really new. And so you just, you know, talk to anybody in crypto, they were working in some completely different field, not that long ago. So just think about how your skills are transferable. I mean, pretty much from any other industry, your skills are going to be transferable in some fashion. Yeah. I'm a journalist and you know, what does writing have to do with with cryptography and tokens and whatnot, like nothing, but you know, I can cover what's going on. So, um, the other thing I would say is like, just get started. Don't be picky. You can kind of scan the landscape from whatever your first purchase and move into the perfect spot later. If you have ever heard Linda Shea's story, she started at Coinbase in compliance and yeah, now she runs crypto hedge funds. So (laughs) Um, you know, it's a really different type of work that she's doing now, but she just got in, learned about it from where she was and then made her move into where she wanted to go after that. And the other thing I would say is if you jump into crypto, be creative and think big. Nothing's set in stone yet. And so don't think too hard about following the rules or just don't get caught up in stuff like that. Just be creative. Let's make something new. Let's let's not do things the way that we have done in the past. Well, I kind of answered this already, but I'll just quickly cover these. Dan Hannum asks what the most impactful episode was. That was definitely the one with Yeonmi Park, where she talked about her life in North Korea and escaping. Hugely, hugely impactful. And the most enjoyable recording, as I mentioned, was the one with Meltem and Jill. They just had me cracking up. ZW asks, who in crypto has been the hardest to interview slash meet or someone you wish would return for another episode but hasn't returned your calls? Roham Garagosli, this is a shout out to you. (laughs) I've made a few different requests and been turned down for reasons I don't understand, even though he and I also shared like personally friendly messages over something totally unrelated. So I would love to have you back. Um, all right. Jor Law says, what has this experience meant for you and what are your best memories of the last five years? The main thing that I would say is what I've learned is if you really want something, you should just go for it. Don't be afraid. Just, just do what it is that your heart calls you to do. You don't know where it's going to lead you. And, you know, I see a lot of people who kind of are in jobs that make them unhappy and they're kind of scared to leave and blah, blah, blah. 
But what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, okay, so maybe you try something and maybe it fails. Well, you can always get another job or, you know, you can pivot and do something else. And, you know, I, I, like, I don't know how many of you are also a fan of the writer Elizabeth Gilbert, but she gave this great talk that I have listened to multiple times. And, you know, in it, she, she just says like, you know, if there's something that you want to do, uh, I mean, for her, the the way the talk is framed, it's like she's talking about creating. If you have something that you want to create, you know, what's your alternative? It's to just keep your life the same as it is and and to not grow and not change and not have this experience. And, you know, frankly, my attitude is like, why did we all come to this planet if it's not to create and take risks and have adventures and in my mind, there are no failures. There are only lessons. So I, that's my big takeaway, frankly, from doing this podcast. And for those of you who don't know the story, there was a moment, you know, Forbes started the podcast for me and then they dropped it after the first season and I had to keep it going. And I loved doing it so much. I worked really hard to find a sponsor. I, I was sure that I would find a sponsor and I finally did. And, you know, it was that for that year where... I had that sponsored. That was for the year 2017 when the whole crypto space took off and, you know, the downloads really grew on the show. So um, it was, I'm really, really glad that I just, there was something in me. I was like, I love doing this. I have to keep doing it. I'm not going to stop. And, you know, I'm glad that I did that. So, and look where I am five years later. Oh, and Jor also asked my best memory of the last five years. This is very recent. Someone emailed me recently and said that a podcast episode I did not that long ago inspired them to change their job. So that was, it was really lovely. What has surprised you most about how the space has evolved over the last five years? This is from Show Me the Crypto. Um, I will say the NFT thing kind of came out of nowhere for me, but maybe I was wrapped up in my book and not really paying that much attention to what was going on. I mean, I did cover the first Beeple sale in the fall, the first big one for I think it was like 3.6 million. And I knew at that time, like definitely something was happening, but I still feel like I kind of lost track of it before just all of that, uh, you know, came out of the woodwork in the winter. What I would say also about the way the space has evolved in the last five years is just, it's gotten so big and diverse in terms of the types of things that are going on that I definitely have think have been thinking a lot more about specializing in certain areas, at least for certain products in a way that I never did before. All right. Last question from Jackie T other than covering crypto, what journalistic pursuits slash goals you have in mind for the future? I want to write more books and I will. All right. I think that wraps up for the five year anniversary episode. Thanks to everyone who sent in questions and thanks so much for um, listening to my show throughout these years, I cannot say at all um, what this show and what you all have meant to be meant to me. I really, truly appreciate that you all have taken the time to listen to me and to support my work. I'm thankful to all of the sponsors as well who have supported the show all these five years. And frankly, you guys, I'm super excited for you all to read my book which is where I've really been putting most of my effort these last few years. And so, yeah, I'm excited to share that all with you. Thank you all again for listening these last few years. And here's to more fun, crazy, and intellectually stimulating times in crypto. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.